The following sermon was delivered during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is our guest preacher for today's service. Let us, let us bow together in prayer and let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Our scripture lesson today is taken from the Gospel of Matthew. It's printed in your bulletin, Matthew 10, 5 through 16, the sending of the 12. Listen for God's word to you. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the, new, the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for laborers deserve their food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who in it is worthy and stay there until you leave. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. See, I am sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord for you, the people of God. Well, from my Friday email blast, you know that I have chosen to sort of every year come up with a song title to base my sermon's on when I come back, and if I'm invited back next year, two months before the election, I'll come up with another song title, and it may uh, take me a little time to mull over what that one will be. Last year, um, to give you a sense of Colorado and the Rocky Mountains, it was John Denver's Rocky Mountain High, and uh, we looked at a psalm that talked about the inspiration of the mountains and, and looking up toward God in our lives. Um, this year, as you'll hear in a moment or two, it's the Who's classic, um, We Won't Get Fooled Again, or Won't Get Fooled Again, and uh, again, next year it'll be probably another song. So um, I haven't preached since I did last June when I was here, so it's 15 months ago. Um, I was likened uh, guest preaching and also preaching as an associate a little bit like being a pinch hitter in baseball. You know, you're on the bench and you stay on the bench and you try and get loose and be ready to hit when it's your turn to hit. So I've been in the batting cage and working away, but 
I'm not sure my swing is in great shape, so maybe we should pray. Let us pray. <laughs> May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The year was 1973, and much to my parents' chagrin, I had dropped out of college, or more technically taken a leave of absence from the University of Virginia halfway through my sophomore year. To make matters worse, the reason for my withdrawal was so that I could devote myself full-time toward being in a rock and roll band. I looked the part of a rocker at the time. I had a lot more hair back then. Between the beard and sort of a curly afro, I resembled a sunflower. You get the picture. You can imagine how this went over with my dad when I first broached the subject of leaving college. To say the least, it wasn't the easiest conversation I ever had with my father. But I was determined that I needed to explore being a full-time musician and eventually my parents reluctantly went along. For in the second year of college, I had begun playing keyboards with a group of other UVA students who were interested in forming a band. And after some initial success playing a variety of clubs in Charlottesville, Virginia, we all decided that we'd try and make a full-time go of it. But first we needed to come up with a catchy name for our group. We looked high and low and debated lots of different names, but we kept coming back to one word that seemed to be plastered daily across the front pages of the newspaper, the word scandal. You see, this was back when the Watergate burglary and subsequent cover-up was breaking wide open. And as new revelations seemed to burst forth every week across the public's consciousness, we decided that what better name could we come up with for the band than one that gave us free publicity almost daily in the papers. So scandal it was, and we did our very best to be scandalous. The group was made up of five of us. I played keyboards and sang vocals. My college roommate, Hugh, played a Jethro Tull-like flute and synthesizer. We also had a rhythm guitarist who sang lead, a bass drummer, a bass player, and a drummer. And my friend Bill Goldsborough, who had gone both to the Lawrenceville School and UVA with me, he agreed to be our manager. Bill had some good connections and managed to book us in clubs in Virginia Beach and up and down the North Carolina coast in Nags Head. We also played frat parties at UVA and colleges like Sweetbriar and as far away as Middlebury, Vermont. Scandal was a hard-driving form a band that played rock and roll with the majority of the music being British rock with a heavy dose of the Rolling Stones, Rod Stewart and the Faces, the Moody Blues, and of course the group which is connected to today's sermon, The Who. And one of their, of their songs which we covered was the rock classic, Won't Get Fooled Again. I slightly altered the title for the purposes of today's sermon by putting a we in front of it, but you get the gist. On our version of the song, it was my role to play organ while Hugh played that great synthesizer part that builds and builds near the end of the piece until Roger Daltrey comes back in with that blood-curdling scream that leads into the final crashing chords 
with the words, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Remember that the line? And guess who got to do the blood-curdling scream in our group? It was me. I loved doing that scream. I'll do it for you now, except I don't want to stir us out of our summer stupor. But um, <laughs> it was always my favorite piece of the night when we played Won't Get Fooled Again, even though our fans liked our Rolling Stones set that was, had people dancing on the tables. Of course, back then, I had no idea what this song was really all about and why the Who had written it. We were young, we were 20, young and clueless and just having a blast running around the country playing rock and roll. We didn't score very high on the charts for introspection and social awareness. And it was only much later on in life that I became aware of the backstory to this classic and why Peter Townsend wrote it. Won't Get Fooled Again is a song about how political and or social revolutions often have unintended effects and may not really end up significantly changing the status quo. Thus the song's conclusion where Townsend pens the cynical words, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. The Who, as they became famous in the late 60s and 70s, were in demand by a new breed of British politicians who wanted to co-opt their celebrity status and popularity in support of their own ends. Change was in the air in the late 60s, and some politicians wanted the who to lead the charge, while at the same time trying to attach themselves to their coattails. So in writing this song, Peter Townsend was sending a message to both politicians and revolutionaries alike that what lies at the very center of his life is not for sale, cannot be co-opted to any obvious cause. On some level, he pleads in the song, leave me and my family alone to live my life and work for change in my own way. There's an aspect of life that is not for sale in all of us, exceedingly for those who follow Christ. But that doesn't stop people in power from trying to use us for their own ends, especially those who have celebrity status and significant followings. Zooming forward now some 50 years later into our current day and age, I couldn't help but think about Kanye West and that bizarre interview that he gave last year in the Oval Office. If you happen to see or listen to that interview, you know that it was really, really out there. Touching on a perplexing array of issues, including identity politics, Air Force One of all things, mental health, and much, much more. The free-flowing rant most commentators declared was clearly one of the most embarrassing things ever occur in that hallowed space. And certainly, as it turned out, ended up being one of the biggest embarrassments of Kanye's life. For a few weeks later, his wife, Kim Kardashian, felt the need to try to rehabilitate his image, explaining in a public interview that while her husband happens to like our current president's personality, he really doesn't know anything about politics or necessarily endorses policies on such things like immigration, which Kim said if he did fully understand, he'd certainly come down on the side of compassion. This led to Kanye coming out a bit after Kim's PR presser saying, 
I've had it with politics. Or in other words, according to Peter Townsend, he won't get fooled again. And on some level, this is the challenge, the labor for all of us. Over the next 14 months leading up to the 2020 elections, for like it or not, between now and then, we are going to be bombarded by politicians, Democrats, Republicans, independents alike, vying for our support and allegiance and endorsement among those in our own circles of influence. And in this post-truth society and age in which we currently live, how do we go about making sure that we don't get fooled again? How do we as followers of Christ remain wise as serpents and innocent as doves, faithful to our Lord and Christian beliefs in what is going to be the most intense election cycle of our lives? Let's face it, friends, the current context in which we live is very unsettling and troubling. Our country is divided into camps, each isolated in their own enclosed media bubbles, each group talking past each other constantly. Congress seems to be completely paralyzed. Science is under assault with the widespread rejection of empirical evidence, leading to the advent of such groups like flat earthers, anti-vaxxers, moon landing hoaxers. And if you don't think these things have serious consequences, the measles outbreak in Northern California is so bad that my son Craig and daughter-in-law Leanne have to be extremely cautious about taking our new grandson Victor out in public until he gets to one year old and can receive the MMR vaccination. Into this, the constant attempts to label things fake news and offer things such as alternative facts, and you can see how it's become harder and harder for us, the American public, to know what to believe, to discern clearly fact from fiction. Now we're confronted with the blitz of the election campaign for 20, which has already started with both Republican and Democratic candidates pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into Facebook ads, vying for our allegiance. How in the world are we going to be able to discern truth in the days ahead when on social media we're faced with things like deep fake technology that posts videos of politicians that make them appear to support something that they don't actually believe in. Where already one leading candidate has a fake website posted by the opposition designed to exploit fissures in that candidate's party, an effort similar to the Russian disinformation campaign by trolls in 2016. And then there's all these bizarre conspiracy theories floating out there muddying the waters. Following Jeffrey Epstein, Epstein's recent suicide in the New York City jail here, Jack Mathis in the week wrote an article saying that the sudden proliferation of conspiracy theories following his death have broken America, badly damaged our sense of truth and how to determine it. He writes that there's a lot of Americans who now believe that they already know what happened in his cell and no amount of documented evidence is going to change their minds. It used to be a truism among us that you're entitled to your own opinion, but not to your own facts. Unfortunately, America today appears to no longer have, though, a commonly accepted basis for determining what facts might mean 
or how to distinguish them from mere suspicion or strongly held opinions. So in the face of all this, how are we followers of Christ to be wise as serpents, to be truth seekers as it pertains to discernment and wrestling over the next 14 months with the political choices that we're all gonna have to make in 2020? This morning, I have a Christian lens to offer you based on the theology and beliefs that lie at the core of our faith, through which I'd invite us to view the information coming at us through all these different social media platforms. But before I go into the aspect of this lens, I first need to tell you about the bird feeders that I have up in our yard in our house in Colorado. One of the great things about being retired is that I now have time to observe and feed the birds. When you think about Colorado, most people don't know that there's actually quite an abundance of water in the state with about 30% of the landmass covered by lakes and rivers and streams. And this leads to Colorado being a great migratory western state for birding with a huge variety of these fascinating creatures passing through the region. So when we, currently, when we bought our current house, I decided that I was gonna put up some bird feeders in our front yard maple and aspen trees to see who might come calling. First, I put up a tube feeder uh, without any outside protection, but I found that what happened was the larger birds, like the red-winged blackbirds and grackles, they would bully the smaller birds out of the way and take all the feed. So then I went to cage feeders and upside-down goldfinch tubes to even things out. On a cage feeder, the openings in the wire are so small that only the little birds, like finches, can get in to feed. But at the same time, when they do get at the seed, they knock a bunch of it down to the ground where the larger birds get in there to feed on it and can pick it up. Thus, everyone's happy because they all get to eat. From the front window of our dining room, we get to daily watch this dynamic playing out. As I've aged, though, I've found that my distance vision, maybe some of you can relate to this, is not what it used to be. So to clearly see the variety of birds in the feeder, I've taken to using a small set of binoculars, which allow me to get a really good look at the red-breasted house finches and goldfinches that the feeder attracts. The key thing, though, in getting a clear picture of the birds pertains to using that focal lens in the middle of the binoculars that sharpens the image. When you use the little dial, that allows me to get a true, clear picture from which to observe the magnificence of God's flying creatures. In a similar vein, I offer you now the following four Christian truths, which can serve as a lens through which to view the political images and words coming at us today, and which may help you dial in your focus to get a clear, truthful picture in your mind and heart, and hopefully give you some direction in making the difficult choices that lie ahead. The first corner of our Christian lens comes from the book of Genesis, where we are told that we are all created in God's image. Each and every person born into this world has a spark of the divine deep within your soul that nothing can erase. We are all God's children, beloved by the Creator. And interestingly enough, this truth is not only attested to by both the Old and New Testaments, 
but also is found in the scriptures of all the world's major religions who agree with one another that we are all created in God's image. The second corner of our lens has to do with God's love for every human family scattered across the globe, some 7.7 billion of us and counting. Jesus tells us that God makes the sun shine and the rain fall on everyone, the just and the unjust. God is presently with and cares for everyone with no distinction for any of the categories that we want to divide ourselves into. And it's not just us. God's care extends to all living creatures scattered across the globe on God's sacred earth. The third corner of our lens is that as God extends his love and faithfulness to us, we in turn are called to extend the same love and grace toward each other. When Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment of all, he replies that we're first to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul. And secondly, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Christians can't love God and hate the other. Love of God and love of neighbor, they go hand in hand and are inseparable in faithful Christian living and witness. And then the final corner of our lens has to do with our responsibility toward creation. God has placed us here on this magnificent planet and calls us to be good stewards of the earth. All of us, each one of us in the pews today has been given an inherent trust by the creator to see that the abundant resources of the planet are protected and maintained so that they can be passed down to sustain the future generations that will come after us. The beautiful planet we call home deserves our love and care, like the love and care we are charged to extend to our neighbor. So taken together, these four corners of the Christian lens, one, the truth that we're all created in God's image, two, the promise that God loves and cares for everyone, three, the command that we in turn are called forth to show the same love toward our neighbor, and four, are charged to be faithful stewards of God's good earth. These four viewing points are the focus by which I encourage you to view all the policies and proposals that are going to be coming our way from all sides of the political aisle over the next 14 months. Looking through this lens, ask yourself, how do these things jive with what we know of God and with what God has taught us? Are they congruent with what God desires for his creation? And while you're doing this, listen very closely to your soul for what I call cognitive dissonance. That feeling that there's something not quite right, something not of God, which is trying to attach itself to that part of you which isn't for sale. Cognitive dissonance is that which disturbs your interior moral and ethical compass and is often the way that the Holy Spirit works to guide us toward truth. Thomas Aquinas once wrote, if something is true, it is always from the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. So the unease you sense within when reading or watching something on social media likely is the Spirit flashing those red warning lights out 
in your direction. So if our core Christian affirmations and beliefs give us a lens of discernment through which to act wise as serpents in the months ahead, how do we then go about being innocent as doves in these challenging times? And I have to admit to you this morning that I personally find this last charge of Jesus to be the most challenging because I find the current state of our political discourse tends to tug at my lesser angels. Unfortunately, the politics of division, which I absolutely detest, has the insidious effect of creating an anger within me whose first impulse is not to reach out toward others with innocence and gentleness, but rather with animosity and violence. Obviously, though, that's not what God desires of us today. In the Beatitudes, Jesus declares, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And children of God are called to be bridge builders, not bridge demolitionists. In being innocent as doves, we are to turn away from that anger inside and turn toward nonviolence in our attempts to restore community in our divided land. Gandhi wrote that nonviolence is the active, unconditional love toward others, the persistent pursuit of truth, the radical forgiveness toward those who have hurt us, the steadfast resistance of every form of evil, and even the loving willingness to accept suffering in the struggle for justice without the desire for retaliation. When we practice this form of nonviolence, we are claiming our true identity as children of God. And Catholic priest John Deere argues that the social, economic, and political implications of such a practice are astounding. If we are children of a loving creator, then every human being is our sibling, and we can never desire to hurt anyone on earth ever again, much less be silent in the face of war, starvation, racism, sexism, nuclear weapons, systematic injustice, and environmental destruction. Our nonviolent, innocent as doves approach then to this bridge building takes the form of reaching out across the aisle with respect and dignity to dialogue about the tough issues of the day with those who see things differently than us. When Congress reconvenes this September, we all have been promised that the Senate is going to take up the issue of gun violence once again. And did you know that recently our church, the Presbyterian Church USA, just became the first denomination to ordain a minister of gun violence prevention, the Reverend Deanna Hollis, who will serve the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship. Reverend Hollis was ordained to this specific position just this past July. And there's a fascinating article about her call in the Presbyterian Mission News, which you can access online. As the two mass shootings recently in Dayton and El Paso demonstrate, this article points out we are facing a gun violence epidemic across our country, which obviously is not of God. The thing that struck me, though, the most about Reverend Hollis's description about why she feels called to this ministry 
is the point she makes toward the end of the article when she says that churches like ours, the mainline Protestant churches, hold out hope for the eventual transformation of our violent landscape. For she says it's places like the Presbyterian Church that are one of the last vestiges now in our society where people of different political persuasions are still bonded to each other and can still meet one another in love to talk about the difficult issues of the day and work together to find common solutions that lead to greater life for the people of our country. As Congress searches for solutions this fall, we too in our churches have the same opportunity to do the same and to express our findings then back to our elected representatives in Washington. Reverend Hollis is a resource available to help congregations facilitate dialogue on this life and death topic. And it's a new resource that I pray many of our churches will take advantage of in the coming year. Conclusion then, the next 14 months and the election in the fall of 2020 stands to be one of the most crucial defining times in the history of our land. I pray that we being wise as serpents through the viewpoint of our Christian lens and innocent as doves through our practice of peacemaking might be leaven in the loaf for our hurting country and enable us in the immortal words of the Who's Peter Townsend to not be fooled again. May it be so. Amen. and on every human family. In the name of the God who creates life, in the name of the Savior who loves life, in the name of the Spirit who is the fire of life, go in peace. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 646- Four nine one eight three three one. Thank you and God bless.